Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 483 of the podcast and it is Saturday the 4th of April 2020 as I record this at the end of the second week of lockdown here in the UK. So today I have an interview with David Chilton, who is famous in Canada with his book, The Wealthy Barber, and he's also on the Canadian Dragon's Den. He's a serial entrepreneur and he sells books direct to companies, bypassing the usual channels to make lots of money directly. And this is a fantastic interview and it will give you lots of ideas. I made lots of notes. And although this interview focuses on nonfiction in particular, the technique can also be applied to fiction, as we covered back in episode 377 with David Hendrickson, who sells his teen fiction direct in bulk into schools as they have a subplot about bullying. So this is definitely something that can be applied uh, if you write fiction as well. Now, David uh, does mention his course on selling in bulk to corporates. And yes, I am an affiliate. And my link, should you choose to accept it, is thecreativepen.com forward slash bulk sales. And that interview is coming up and I'll mention the link at the end, but um, uh, definitely is something I am doing. So, uh, as I mentioned, it is the end of the second week of lockdown here in the UK and it continues to be a roller coaster every day. And I'm sure the same is true for you wherever you are in the world. And The whole thing has become a little more personal, in fact, a lot more personal this week as several of our extended family members have COVID and some days are very sad and it all feels quite dark. And then Jonathan and I, every day now we're walking by the canal in the spring sunshine. We're allowed one walk a day here in the UK for exercise And the birds are singing and the bunnies are hopping through the fields as the sheep graze and the butterflies are out and the bumblebees are buzzing by the flowers and the herons are fishing in the water and it just feels quiet and there's moments where you feel like, wow, this is just so still and peaceful and good. So there are moments either way and I'm sure you're going through something similar and I hope you and your family are safe and uh, I will I'll talk a little bit later about the interview I've got coming next week which will hope, hopefully help some more. But uh, today I did want to do a little introduction. I mean I normally talk about the news and of course the news is kind of crazy but I did want to talk about the impact on authors and publishing. Obviously uh, the coronavirus is impacting on every single industry in the world. Um, But we cannot talk about the whole world on this podcast. So here's a few things in terms of what's going on in the publishing industry that we're going to see uh, impacts from. So for traditionally published authors and um, publishers and bookstores, obviously bookstores, physical bookstores have been closing in, say, March and April, probably May, possibly June. Uh, Who knows how long physical bookstores will be 
uh, shut. Now, Barnes & Noble has closed 60% of stores in the US and are laying off staff. Waterstones and Foils are closed here in the UK, as well as independent bookstores. And WH Smiths, which is a big chain, has also closed a lot of its stores. Canada's Indigo Books has closed all stores and laid off over 5,000 staff. And that's just a few places I've looked at. Uh, in the UK, Gardeners and Bertrams have closed their warehouses. And these are the uh, warehousing distribution services for traditionally published print runs. And uh, Ingram are continuing with print on demand. So that will be, you know, most independent authors use print on demand and we don't do print runs. And it's interesting because I've been to the Ingram warehouse and some people would say, oh, but these should be closed as well. But seriously, I've been in their warehouse. There were just a couple of people in this massive warehouse and most of it's automated. The thing that is not automated, of course, is shipping and distribution, which is done by different companies, obviously, including Amazon. And there are calls for these things to stop or slow down in order to protect workers, while at the same time, people also need delivery people more than ever, uh, particularly for grocery delivery to people who need to get food. And it is hard to worry about physical books being shipped when many health workers can't get appropriate uh, protective clothing. But every industry has their issues and publishing, although not a critical need, there are many authors, publishers and people in the industry who will see an impact from the fall in physical book sales, which are going to happen. Publishing Perspectives reports uh, from Italy saying that the industry is expected to produce 18,600 fewer titles and 30, over 39 million books will not be printed and 2,500 titles will not be translated. 88% of publishers report great concern about whether they can survive the crisis. And if that is replicated in every country, the publishing industry will be badly hit, a lot of authors will find their books orphaned. If you are an author with a book under contract that might be impacted, and this might be if it hasn't been published yet, or if you're with a a small publisher that might be under threat from bankruptcy, then make sure you have checked your contract and the terms in that contract in case of bankruptcy. But also, if they decide not to go ahead with publication, because this does happen, books that are under contract and have been an advance has been paid, and then they decide just not to publish it. As as this has said uh, about Italy, 18,600 fewer titles to be produced it's unclear whether those are things that have already been signed or whether those are, you know, a missing period. But this is uh, going to be difficult. Um, obviously, libraries are mostly closed. But of course, many libraries have digital catalogues for ebooks and audiobooks, as discussed last week with Mark Leslie Lefebvre. And you can get your books into library um, catalogues through Drafter Digital for ebooks and also Publish Drive and Smashwords, and also Findaway Voices for audio as well as other distributors. So digital sales are definitely still happening, digital borrows um, through you know, libraries, subscription services, these things are still happening. But I, I'm not sure about you, but I was looking at my own behaviour and I am reading, I'm reading less. I, I've, I'm watching, probably watching more TV, <laughs> which 
just, yeah, I mean, some of these big box sets are a good way to sink into story oblivion. So we definitely need story. It's just that I've only really been buying a book a week, whereas normally I buy like three to five books a week. And, um, you know, people are saying, oh, everyone's going to read more, but I think everyone's reading more news at the moment. Now, this might calm down as the news cycle slows. Uh, who knows? But um, I definitely think we're going to see a slowdown because, I don't know, well, maybe a change in genre. Like I normally read quite dark stuff, but I am finding I can't read it at the moment. <laughs> Uh, it is it is definitely an interesting time for sure. But our behaviour changes week by week. So what I say today might, well, will be <laughs> different by next week for sure. But um, in terms of author cash flow, I want people to think about this because our, we just got paid um, this end of March, beginning of April period. We just got paid for February and nothing had changed in February in the US, UK, Canada, Australia, the main markets where most of us make our money. Nothing had changed in February. So we're not going to see this impact until uh, May, June. That's when we're going to see the impact of March, April uh, sales. And also that's going to be true for publishers. So what you have to think with cash flow, and I, I often feel that this is a topic that many people d don't necessarily understand. So, uh, and this is why understanding it for advertising is so important, because if you do ads in April, you're going to pay for those ads in April, but you're not going to see the money until June. So you have to understand about cash flow in order to do all this. The same thing's true for, for publishers. So, when the money comes due for the sales made in February, let's say February sales, most publishers are going to be on a 60 day term as well. So they're going to expect to get money at the end of April for February and they might find that they're not going to get it because bookstores will struggle, publishers will be impacted, cash flow from other sources won't come in. And so the ripple effect of missing cash flow within the 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 cycle is going to hit us probably, as I said, um, May, June, rather than right now. So what I would, you know, I talked about doing triage on business and putting aside money if you can and trying to make quicker money um, now so that you have more of a buffer. I think that's really important. And of course, the independent author model is resilient in an online only world because we do ebook, audiobook, print on demand, all of this stuff is online. And so what I think might happen on a positive note, I think that more authors and more publishers will go this way. And, uh, you know, will Barnes and Noble reinvigorate the nook? It might be the only possible cash flow in a world gone digital? Uh, or will this cause many readers who now can't get their books in a physical bookstore, will it cause them that last kind of holdout to start buying online, to start buying digitally? And uh, I think that's going to be interesting. It might, like library readers, for example, those library readers who up until now have said, oh, I just, I like books in print. Will they switch to borrowing from the library app because uh, they can't go into the physical library? All of this will benefit us as authors and creators if the change in behaviour sticks to be a digital. So I'm, I'm sort of, I'm always trying to see the upside, you know that. And I, I think that 
the behaviour change will probably stick if this goes on for a couple of months. They say it takes 21 days to make a new habit. And lots of people are suddenly discovering Zoom and Skype and online meetings, which is what those of us in the industry have been doing for a decade. (laughs) So it's very interesting once people discover what they can do, what is possible. And many people will try things because they're getting desperate. For example, selling direct to your readers, as I've talked about. uh, And I did a bit of a push the other week for my Payhip store, payhip.com forward slash the creative pen. That has been fantastic. And I I'm going to encourage more and more authors to do that. Uh, what else? Books, bookstores and festivals are moving events online. That trend is likely to continue after that is over. And I think bookstores will realise that by streaming talks by authors, they can sell more tickets, potentially make more income. And they can also sell direct over the internet and get more customer data, which is what so many people are missing because all of the sales go through the big stores. Um, so doing things more directly means you can actually control your relationship with the customer. So I think publishers might finally be trying to sort out digital sales and marketing channels, maybe resurrecting old email lists. Don't be surprised if you suddenly get an email from some Simon and Schuster imprint or something you signed up for years ago from the back of a book. I think they'll be resurrecting these old email lists because they'll see how dependent they are on bookstores and print stores, many of which might not come back if this goes on for too long. Um, Because, yeah, I mean, you have to think how long can you manage without cash flow? Uh, What else? I have heard from editors and some freelance proofreaders that they have more work than usual. So clearly people are spending time in lockdown working on their books, which is fantastic. Good to hear that the service industry is good and that might be an idea for authors who are struggling. Do some freelance editing, freelance proofreading and uh, other things. Services are a great way to make money more quickly. And in terms of book marketing, uh, I've heard that Facebook ads are much cheaper at the moment. (laughs) I'm not sure if engagement is up, but certainly the ad spend has gone down. Now, personally, my own ad spend has gone down because I'm cutting down on, um, you know, spending in general and tightening the old belt. But that's obviously what everyone's doing. I would be obviously wary of, um, you know, be very wary of your own cash flow. But I guess if you do have um, money to spend, now might be a good time to do advertising. But I think the main thing is to stay in touch with the readers you already have and the community you already have and nurture the relationships that are important. And that's you guys. You guys are important to me. And, uh, you know, I'm recording this on Saturday because yesterday I normally record on a Friday and I just was like, oh, I can't do this today. I can't, I can't, I just, I just couldn't do it. And then this morning I I was psyched up to talk to you and get this out on Monday because so many of you have said that this is um, important and a time in a time of difficulty that having something that's regular uh, helps. So I'm committed to continuing to deliver this. (laughs) If if I'm going to put in a contingency plan, so if I get sick, it will get delivered in some way. I feel like the circle of care has grown smaller, like we care about certain people and we want uh, the people we 
support to survive. And those we know, like and trust are more important. So whoever your readers are in your community, make sure you're connecting with them. I'm also answering um, all my email or everything. The email is now mine again. So I am on my email, joanna at thecreativepen.com if you uh, want to email me about anything, obviously. (laughs) Uh, Preferably something interesting and useful. Uh, Okay. A couple of other things. Circling back to money, I was on the Choose FI, so that's uh, Choose Financial Independence, Choose FI podcast last week. Um, You can find that just on all your usual podcast apps or on choosefi.com. And I was talking about creativity and money and also how my business got started in after I was laid off in the global financial crisis of 2008-2009. And I think this is particularly relevant because a lot of people are going through the same thing I did back then. And there will be a lot of new businesses spawned by the coronavirus. It is a time of great destruction, which is often followed by a time of great creation. So it is painful, but uh, we have to trust emergence. We are creatives and emergence is what happens. And uh, yeah, we stay safe and we create. That is what we do. Uh, so yes, the Choose FI podcast and the guys are doing a lot of uh, shows on aspects of money. So um, it's a good show to listen to anyway. I, in term, talking about money, let's make some money. I have a new mini course out this week that could help you make more money. It is a little bit meta. It is a mini course on how to turn what you know into an online course. <laughs> Yes, basically lots of authors. And in fact, um, you know, my brother, who's a photographer and um, my personal trainer, Dan, and lots of people who do physical based businesses are trying to turn what they know into an online course. And I was getting lots of questions. So I decided to write it all down. Uh, It is just 99 US dollars. Um, Of course, if you've done any of my other courses, you get 20% off. And if you're a patron, you get 10% off. And you can check it out at thecreativepen.com forward slash learn. If you have done one of my courses or you are a patron and you don't know the promo code, please do email me. Uh, I have been doing courses for over a decade and I have done so many different ways of courses. I've done courses on pretty much everything under the sun. They have been an important part of my creative business. And I think teaching online is going to boom. And uh, as the impact continues, yes, there will be more competition. But if you're building an audience for your books and you can teach something that is related, then why wouldn't you? Um, So authors who want more streams of income should definitely consider teaching online. Go to thecreativepen.com forward slash learn and check that out. I was also on the self-publishing show podcast talking about audio for authors. So uh, and this week I'll be on the Kobo Writing Life podcast also talking about it. So obviously I'm still I had sort of forgotten that audio for authors launched on 6th of March. (laughs) (laughs) about a week before everything went horribly, crazily wrong. Also, I have released an interview about Namibia in Southwest Africa on my books and travel podcast. Um, If you read The Skeleton Coast by Clive Cussler back in the day, like I did, I've always dreamed of Namibia. And uh, we recorded the interview a few months back. It's super enthusiastic. Angelina Kalahari is a great interview. And I since I have a couple of interviews left in the bag, I'm still putting them out on books and travel. I'm still 
figuring out what to do with that podcast, to be honest. But since we won't be travelling in real life for a while, um, you can have a moment of escape on Books and Travel podcasts uh, on all the usual podcast apps. All right. Thank you for all your emails and tweets and comments on the show. Um, Paula Paula on YouTube says, awesome episode. I'm glad the podcast is going ahead. It helps and inspires me. Libraries are so important. I owe so much to the local libraries that were my major source of books to read growing up. Uh, Brilliant. Thanks to Mary Lynn, who sent a lovely picture of the quilt she's making while sheltering in place. Uh, Brandon says, I want to double down on what other listeners are saying. Yes, please keep the podcast going. It is refreshing amidst planetary chaos. Your voice is a soothing balm to Yankee ears. Thank you, Brandon. Brendan P. Kelso says, please remind your followers that what we do matters. Imagine no binging shows, no music, no books, no video games about now. Art matters. Writing books matter. In our own small way, we are helping the world get through this crazy time. Totally agree with you, Brendan. Um, But I also want to say, if you're not able to create at this time, don't feel guilty. One more thing. Oh, Harley Christensen, who always shares on Twitter from the podcast. Thank you, Harley, for always sharing. Says, um, always love it when Mark and Joanna get together. A great mood booster and fantastic takeaways too. And yeah, that will do. Thank you to everybody who uh, posted tweets and comments and sent emails. I'm reading them all and I I just love to see pictures from where you are so, oh, in fact, I'll just share. Lisa M. Lilly says, <laughs> I had to comment, I envy the creative pen in a hammock and warm weather. Nice enough in Chicago for a socially distant walk later. <laughs> to be fair, we had just brilliant week and now it's got cold again. So no more hammock for now. Right. So today's show is sponsored by draft digital and I'll play a word from the lovely Kevin Tumlinson in a minute. I use draft digital to distribute my eBooks to Nook, library apps and other online stores. They also run books to read.com books number two read.com where you can create a single link that directs readers to books on multiple platforms. Very useful when you publish wide. You can now add PayHip and authors direct, which is the findaway voices audio direct sale uh, links into your books to read. This is brand new. Just heard about it from uh, Mark. So selling direct is becoming much easier to share with your readers. So thanks for doing that, guys. And I'll play a word from Kevin in a minute. This type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. And at a time like this, it's more important than ever. I just so appreciate your support on Patreon. It means so much to me. Uh, Thanks to everyone who has increased their pledge at this time. I appreciate it. And those of you who have continued supporting even in difficult times. Thanks to new patrons this week, Natalie Jasper, Heike Westendorf or Westendorf, Klaus Muller, Pam D and Frankie Thompson. I really appreciate your support on Patreon. It demonstrates you enjoy the show and want it to continue. You can support the show with just a couple of dollars a month and you get the extra monthly Q&A audio, including the backlist. Plus, you get 10% off all my courses. And I have so many courses now. uh, It's actually worth it to subscribe for a couple of dollars so you get the code. (laughs) 
Uh, you can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Here's a word from draft to digital and then we'll get into the interview. Hey, this is Kevin Thompson with draft to digital and we love libraries. Everyone at draft to digital first discovered a love for reading at their local library and chances are you did too. That's why we've put a big focus on building up library distribution for DDD authors. With a catalog of library distributors that reaches thousands of public, academic, and business libraries all over the planet. Overdrive, Biblioteca, Baker & Taylor, Hoopla. We just keep adding new ways for you to reach library patrons everywhere. And we're including new ways to make some money with innovations such as cost per checkout, a royalty structure that lets libraries check out as many copies of your books as they need, helping you reach eager patrons and get paid as you go. Find out more about how Draft2Digital works with libraries and you at drafttodigital.com slash library dash pricing. David Chilton is the author of finance books, The Wealthy Barber and The Wealthy Barber Returns, as well as being a venture capitalist on Canada's Dragon's Den. His self-published books on finance have sold over 5 million copies, and David now has a number of courses out on bulk sales and non-fiction book marketing, which we're talking about today. Welcome, David. I just watched Line of Duty on Netflix. And so I've been hearing a lot of British accents. And no, it's great to be here. I love book marketing. I I don't do a lot of it anymore. In fact, I put the course together that you referenced a few years ago because we were being so overwhelmed with requests from self-published authors to give them some guidance. I thought I'd put everything I knew in a course and put it out there. So I'm glad it's going over well. And it's a thrill to be with you. I know you're one of the biggest influencers in the whole industry. You've helped a lot of people and you should be proud of that. Oh, thank you so much. Well, uh, my Canadian friends tell me that you're super famous. <laughs> so I'm very excited <laughs> to talk to you. But you self-published your books before it was trendy to do so. So winding the clock back, why did you decide to do it yourself back then? Well, you know, what's interesting is been a lot of articles written saying that I couldn't get the book published. And honestly, I wish that was the case because it would be more dramatic and it'd be a better story. But that's not the situation. I ended up going to Fitzhenry Whiteside, a Canadian publisher then, and Harper and Collins, Harper Collins. And they both said yes. They both liked The Wealthy Barber, but they wouldn't give me control over the corporate sales market, the bulk sales market. And I knew the publishers weren't strong in that area. It was something I wanted to emphasize, make it a key part of the marketing. And the margins are good, obviously. So I held back and said, I'll self-publish it and I'll put it in the bookstores myself and didn't really know what I was doing. I read John Kremer's book, A Thousand Own Ways to Market Your Books. And I started knocking on doors. Initially, I couldn't even get into bookstores, but then it got traction in the book. It's second year, key to note, it was its second year that it took off and went on to become the top selling Canadian book ever. And then we launched down the States and it went well down there and it got turned into a PBS show. And it's been a lot of fun. Frankly, I've only had one good idea in my entire life, but I had it when I was 25, thankfully. And I'm not that sharp a guy. But the book marketing end of things, I really enjoyed. I ended up enjoying that more than my specialty area, which is personal finance. And self-publishing, of course, is a, a great spot for creativity and experimenting and trying different marketing initiatives. And we did a lot of that, then taught a lot of other people how we did it. And it's been a great, great experience. I've met so many wonderful people over the years. Mm. So uh, what year was it when you first uh, published? 
I published in 1989. I self-published The Wealthy Barber that year, brought it out in the States, partnered in a very unique way with Prima Publishing. They ended up getting taken over by Simon & Schuster down in the States. And it's interesting, at the time this happened, so we're talking 29 years ago, I thought this would become a very conventional type of deal structure where I controlled the corporate sales, was able to buy books from them at just above cost, but they controlled the retail and paid me a conventional royalty. And I thought that deal with structure would take off. I've only seen it five or six times since. Simon & Schuster's now doing a lot of that with their big nonfiction authors. But for the most part, it hasn't become what I thought it would. And it should, because a lot of authors are very good at corporate sales. They picked up on the potential in that marketplace. They know the industry players. They've got the credibility to make the calls. And we'll talk more later about how that opportunity set's not being taken advantage of. But that's how the deal came out. It started then. The book sold well for years and years. And then I ended up helping two young sisters from Canada to self-publish a series of cookbooks. And they went on to set all kinds of records. They've sold millions and millions and millions of books self-publishing the cookbooks too. So the kind of marketing we've used obviously has been effective. I think we've put out seven books out of the office and they've all gone directly to number one. Mm. And it's so interesting because I think, uh, you know, you mentioned there that these uh, publishing companies did were not strong at the corporate sales and are still not strong at the corporate Horrible. sales. So so that's interesting. And we know that publishing generally goes direct to book, uh, you know, the, the book retailers themselves. So that hasn't changed in the world of publishing. But what has changed? And when nonfiction authors come to you now, you know, what, what are you suggesting that people do differently than you did sort of 20 nine years ago. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think that the listeners are going to think, well, Dave's going to respond to that by talking about all the movements toward eBooks and how Amazon now is overwhelming physical stores. We've had margin suppression. There's all these self-publishing platforms. But I'll tell you the single most important change in the book industry in the last 20 years is the amount of competition for people's attention. You've got Netflix, you've got blogs, you've got podcasts, you've got social media, Twitter in particular, Twitter and LinkedIn are drawing a lot of readers from the old nonfiction buying set. It's making it very difficult. Some of those things can be harnessed as excellent marketing tools, but it is making it more and more difficult. You look at someone like my father, maybe the most avid reader I've ever crossed paths with. He used to read four or five books a week. He's now reading one to two, and it's because he's fallen in love with British dramas on Netflix. And <laughs> oh, sorry true. about that. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. And that's what sabotaged the sales from his perspective. So it's very, very difficult. Podcasts are an interesting animal in that podcasts are a great book marketing tool, one of the best I've ever seen, but they also compete directly with books now. And so I'll have friends who want to learn about a specific nonfiction area. Maybe they're about to start a new business in tech. Well, they used to go and buy four or five books about how to do that or what other people's experiences have been. They'll do some of that, but they'll also turn to podcasts now and draw down from the incredible number of very, very good interviews. So it's a, it's a mixed blessing having podcasts around. So that's one big change. The second one doesn't get enough, to, uh, enough talk. Readers read differently now. Readers want thinner books for the most part. At the very least, they don't want super thick books. There's always going to be exceptions like Tim Ferriss's book. But for the most part, all the research says, if you're writing a nonfiction, do not overwhelm the reader with a very thick book. They definitely want short chapters. The amount of research on that is crazy. And yet people still keep writing 30 and 40 and 50 page chapters. Don't do it. The reader doesn't want it. And one of your jobs, if you want to be impactful, is is to get people to read the book. Well, they're not going to do it if you give them very, very long chapters. So a lot of these types of shifts have come in because there's so many of these opportunities out. We've all got ADD now. And so you've got to navigate all of these new challenges now to produce a great book. And you're trying to rise above all the noise. 
And the last thing I would say is that it's never been a better time to write a great book because word of mouth can prosper with all the social media out there, et cetera. But a good book, an average book, they're tougher to sell now than they've ever been because you have fragmented media and you have so many other options and you have so many people self-publishing, many of the titles very good, many not so good. But to really flourish, you've got to put more time into the book itself. The best single marketing advice I can ever give you, write a really good book. <laughs> yeah, which um, the definition of really good is is in the eyes of the reader, obviously. But I do agree with you on this competition. And I know my own um, reading habits have changed. So for example, I listen to a lot of audiobooks at 1.5 speed. Uh, so I wonder what, and you mentioned podcasts, obviously, I have two podcasts, so I love podcasting. But what do you what do you think about um, audiobooks? I love audiobooks. I think they have tremendous potential in the corporate sales arena. I'll get back to that in a moment. But you have your book out on self-publishing. Excellent book. That's the kind of resource we need. And you are one of the first books on self-publishing to involve a chapter on audiobooks. Way more self-publishers should be looking at it. Look at the millennial set. Much prefers audiobooks to physical books and to ebooks. And give people what they want. They can listen to an audiobook and multitask. They can be working out and you see that all the time. They can be driving the car and you see that all the time. You can't turn aside that market. It's the new way people are taking in information as seen with podcast popularity. But on the corporate sales front, unbelievable potential. There's no printing costs. There's no delivery costs. There's no storage costs, no inventory. And so now you're going to a company that has a thousand employees and you've got a book on stress management and they think it's excellent, but you've got an audio book version. They can come to you and say, give you $2.50 per book with no cost of goods sold. That's a $2,500 profit to the bottom line. Plus you've got all them, those ambassadors there, uh, ambassadors out there listening to the book and word of mouthing it. The possibilities in corporate sales, by the way, have never been stronger because of all the new formats. The books are available in from ebooks to e excerpts to audiobooks, et cetera, et cetera. It's an exciting field. It is. And let's get into that because you've, you've, I, I have looked at, and I read that John Kremer book like a decade ago as well. Sure. I mean, he's fantastic. Um, and, but I had never thought about bulk sales in audio, especially digital audio. So you've, you've really pricked my ears up there. But let's go back to the beginning because many people listening, you know, a lot of them will just sell an ebook and maybe a print on demand paperback on Amazon. That might be their thing. So they might not even know what bulk sales or corporate sales are. So can you just explain, uh, what it is. You know, it's interesting. You, you're, you're obviously very knowledgeable and you phrase that question very well because there's a lot of people listening to this. And again, they've gone the ebook only route with print on demand available because they don't have the capital to front for an offset print run. I get that. Plus, it's tough to create that kind of demand because they don't have an offset print run book. They don't think corporate sales are for them. But remember, this is a basic but crucial point. With the corporate sale, you get the order ahead of time and then you go print the books. We now have all kinds of people who've taken the course or who've had me help them directly who've sold 5,000, 10,000, 70,000. We had two different orders for 70,000 comes in, 110,000, Scott Singh in the background from people who got out there. We'll, got, we'll get to how in a few moments. And then they printed the book after. They only had an ebook and only had a print on demand book too. But when they got people excited about its possibilities in the corporate sale arena, then they went and printed it and they had the order in hand. They had half the cash in hand, by the way, because most of those corporate sales, you get paid 50% up front and there's no return privileges. And really, it's a fantastic field in all the businesses I'm involved in. You know, you mentioned I'm on Dragon's Den in Canada for years. I'd left now, but you're involved in so many different companies. I've never seen a better ROI on efforts 
that I see in the corporate sales arena of the book publishing industry. For all the criticism this industry takes as being very difficult, the corporate sales opportunities are unbelievable. It's a, You're sending out 20 kits, you're making 35 follow-up phone calls, and often you're getting deals for thousands and thousands and thousands of books. And as I mentioned earlier with eBooks and with audio digital books available, the possibilities are truly endless. So I know I'm giving a long answer, but let me give you one example I think will excite you, excite the listeners. My son came to me maybe seven, eight years ago, and I had the Wealthy Barber returns out. And he said, Dad, I have a very unusual idea. I've got one of the online banks interested, and I'm going to make them the Netflix-type offer. I'm going to say you have an unlimited number of downloads for the book for a flat fee. And I said, gee, Scott, I don't know, unlimited number of downloads that could cannibalize or other opportunities. Well, I'll cap it at a big number, but it's going to be unlimited. They won't probably use as many as you're fearful to use, but they'll use a lot and they'll give us a check. Well, how much is the check for? $400,000. Well, I have no, co- <laughs> I have no cost of good sold here. I'm not going to turn that deal down, but here's the really cool thing about it. The book starts getting out there through those unlimited downloads and guess what happens to our physical book sales? Guess mm. what happens to our Amazon sales? All of them go up because it generates awareness. It generates word of mouth. Plus, we were shocked at how many people got the ebook and said, I want the physical book, not just for a gift, but they want it for themselves. A lot of people still prefer physical books. Once they like the book, they want to turn to that. In fact, as you know, in nonfiction, ebook sales have actually slid the last couple of years in most places in the world. And physical book sales have picked up as a percentage. The possibilities, again, in this field are endless. And I sometimes think we're the only people pursuing them. Like, I really do. I've been flowing in to speak to Simon & Schuster, HarperCollins, you name the publishing firm. They've flown me down to the States and said, can you tell us what you do? And we're a little two, three person operation. But a lot of what we do is not that clever. It's just we're the only people doing it. Right. Okay. So I have I have a lot of questions, but I have three three main questions. So first of all, so I have a lot of nonfiction books, but my nonfiction books are for a specific type of audience. So mine are for authors, for example. Right. Um, so and I know a lot of people who write nonfiction, but maybe those books are not right for a corporate audience. So it's it strikes me that the number one thing you have to do is write a book that a corporate might want. So are you suggesting we kind of write into a corporate market? So if you want to hit an accounting group of people, you'd write something aimed at accountants? Yes and no. And that I find when people write books just because they think there's a good sales opportunity, the books aren't very good. I think if they're writing, thinking about marketing as they go, that's one thing, but they're meshing it with something they're not knowledgeable about and something they're passionate about. That tends to be the mix that leads to success. I don't mean to sound like a new age motivational speaker, but it's true. But what you'll find fascinating is I see almost no books in the nonfiction space that I can't help the author with corporate sales. And so you look at your particular case, you're writing for a niche audience, you're writing for people who are self-publishing. Well, you quickly think to yourself, how do I get at them? Well, they're on chat rooms and those types of things. That's good marketing. But you also think, and this is crucial, who else is trying to get at them? Well, maybe printers are. Maybe some of the people in the States who have Lighthouse and all those types of things in the States that do different things. Or in Britain, there's all kinds of people trying to get at the self-published author market. Well, one of the ways you can help them is you give them access to your book. It educates, it increases sales, all those different types of things. So if you look at the Chilton Method course, the course we're talking about, you know who's ended up buying some courses for us to give it to authors? Printers. Mm. Because printers win when people sell more books, especially if they have a big corporate sale. There's always people out there who are also trying to partner with or get at your target audience. You're much better to go after those groups and use your book as a tool to help them to help their business. 
Yeah, you've um, made me think about a lot of things now. Now my brain is heading off on all these ideas. Well, but- I'll give you an example of that is mm. very basic, but it's, mm. it really is interesting. We had a woman come to us when the course first came out. This is only three years ago. And she had written a book that she was trying to get into the hands of dentist's office because it was to try to take the intimidation out of going to the dentist for little kids. And she was struggling to cost effectively reach out to dentists. She tried mailing lists. She tried literally going door to door. She tried it all. Nothing was working too, too well. They're busy when you get to the office, for example. I said to her, forget that. Who else is after dentists? Go to some of the distributors that distribute everything from the toothbrushes to the toothpaste to the machinery and blah, 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 blah. She sold within one week of following that advice, she sold 8,000 books. Mm. One week, she got a corporate sale of 8,000 books because books are relatively inexpensive when purchased in bulk, especially sold because of the discounts, but they have a high perceived value. People like receiving books. So if you're a company trying to get somebody to pay attention to your new teeth cleaner and you're trying to go after dentists, you want to give them a little gift sometimes to open their minds, to ingratiate yourself to them, to deepen the relationship. You want to put your logo on the cover of the book and now the book is sitting in the lobby of the dentist office, frankly, it wasn't even a very tough sale. And my argument is those sales exist for almost every well-done nonfiction book, but unfortunately, nobody's pursuing them. Mm. Okay, so uh, we've decided which book we're going to do. So I know my audience are sitting there going, you mentioned phone calls and we're all introverts. We really don't <laughs> like talking to people. So how are you getting, let's say we've even identified people, how, how do we go about uh, approaching people and pitching people? Well, the good news is we don't use the phone as much as we used to. I used to like leaving voicemails, and I found that the one-way communication let me control the energy, let me control what was said, and it was quite effective. But admittedly, voicemail is not very effective anymore. People don't even tend to listen to them in many instances. And you're right. A fair number of authors are introverts, although not as many nonfiction authors as fiction authors, but it's still an issue. The good news is we've had our most success using kits. So we send out the book along with a very short letter. And if you look at all the things we've been able to accomplish with our book marketing, including garnering all kinds of media and all the corporate sales, we use the less is more approach. We pitch with short letters. We try to intrigue. And that is the key word. We try to intrigue them to whet their appetites. And here's the best piece of news going. When you go after media, everybody's pursuing the media. If you're going after a TV show, a radio show, a big podcast, they're getting hundreds of kits. They're getting thousands of kits. When you get in touch with a company and you send a very nice book in a package, do you know how many of those they're getting? One, yours. Mm -hmm. And they open it and they read the piece and they almost always, in 90% of cases, they take your next phone call or they take your next email. Now, in many cases, there's a rejection. You definitely have to play the numbers game here, but this is much easier than people realize to at least get your day in court. It really is. So I go back to the cookbooks I mentioned earlier. Jan and Greta Podleski wrote a cookbook called Looney Spoons. Nobody had heard of these two sisters. They were out of Ottawa, no brand awareness, no nothing. And we sent a kid out to Nabisco and we said, we think we have great soup recipes. We should put the recipes on the side of the Nabisco cracker boxes back and forth. We got the deal. Can you imagine two sisters working out of their basement in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, who nobody had heard of? partner with Nabisco and going on millions of boxes of crackers. And you say, well, how do we able to do it? Because we tried. Mm. We made the phone call. We sent the kit. Now we did a good job. And in the course, we detail exactly how we put that kit together. And the attention to detail matters, how we whet their appetites, how we intrigue them. And we lay all that out. But again, for the most part, our success comes from trying things nobody else is doing. 
Yeah, and as you talk, I I think I know why authors don't do this. It's because the traditional publishing industry in particular has has educated authors to have a pick me, pick me, poor me, you know, I need anointing True. type of approach. Whereas what you're suggesting is very much go out there and get stuff yourself. You do. And the funny thing is we don't do it through a super aggressive approach. Like I'm, I'm not great that way. We do it through playing the numbers game a little bit. So if we're looking at, for example, companies serving the dentistry industry for that woman, we'd send out six kits to six companies, not one to one. But also you do having a good initial kit, wetting their appetites, as I've said, intriguing them. But I'll tell you the best way to do it. I hate to be repetitive. It's having a good book. You know, if you send them a book that looks professional, that's got a nice cover, a great title, subtitle combination, has a good testimonial on the front cover from a credible source, that opens up doors, it opens up minds, it gets people excited. It's so important to create a good book. All those little things that you do as you put your book together, they matter. They really do matter. It's unbelievable how important covers are. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So then my other question was about uh, delivery. So you mentioned there, Scott did a a unlimited digital ebook deal. You've mentioned downloadable audio for corporates as well. Now I understand print book delivery, but um, how how are you delivering digital files to like a big company like that? And, And how are they getting them to employees? Well, this is what I, what I love about this business. When we did the one deal with the bank, we paid a woman to work with their ID department to put a homepage up that they could go to and they could download our book. We gave her the files, the book files, and they could download it in any format they wanted for an Apple, for whatever. She had it all there. And I think we paid her $3,000 $3, mm. and the deal was, the deal was 400,000. <laughs> okay. So this is a nice ratio. That's our only cost by the way. And then we used her again on another big deal we did. Yeah. Like these are not difficult to set up. I'm incompetent when it comes to that kind of technology, but there's lots of people out there who do it and do it very well. Interestingly, most corporate sales, you don't get even get involved. You give them the digital files to the book, the audio book, the ebook. They have people there who can do those types of things easily because they're big companies with deep pockets. And again, deep teams on the IT front. The physical book deliveries, as you said, are relatively straightforward. We often deliver straight from the printer, of course, because we're printing for that order because you sometimes have a customized cover. Like we did a deal last year, uh, Greta Podleski brought out another cookbook and we had Weight Watchers bought 44,000 copies. And you say, well, there's a million cookbooks out there, Dave. How come other cookbooks haven't sold the Weight Watchers? Because we phone them. And again, I'm not trying to be glib, but the other people aren't phoning them. The other people aren't trying to get them excited. The other people aren't sending them 20 free books. That's what I with that one. I got him excited. I did use voicemail in that case. By him, I mean the president. And then I sent 20 copies. And I said, instead of me trying to convince you how wonderful this book is, just give it out to the 20 people in the office that are closest to you and ask them in a week or two what they think of it. Well, they love the book. Off we went. Huge deal. And again, I would argue I can't understand why more people aren't doing these types of things. Let's say it doesn't work. What have you lost? 20 books and a mailing and a phone call. It's very little time, very little money. The capital involvement here is really low. And that's with 20 books. Most of the time, you're just sending one book for heaven's sakes. Yeah, this is, it's so interesting. And I, because I, I first heard about this method uh, a number of years ago, and I didn't do anything about it because I think I, I'm a, a afraid of rejection, as you say, for a start. But two, it, it does feel quite complicated. But I guess you're simplifying it in a way. But in terms of the contracts, are you just doing a basic non-exclusive contract with them with with the with the deal parameters on? I mean, you're, it's not a publishing contract. It, it's more of a it's sale. not a publishing contract. In fact, it's a purchase order, a straightforward purchase order, 98% of cases, but 
on occasion you do get an exclusive. So let's go back to Scott Steele, the unlimited download. They had an exclusive among Canadian banks. And so there was a one pager drafted by them that he signed off on to close that deal. It was nothing. But that's about as complicated as you ever see, by the way. Most of these are just based on purchase orders. And even if there are a couple specifics that need to be included, they're out of the norm. They're written right in the purchase order and it's sent through. Like this is not complicated, but you made a legitimate point. There's a lot of rejection. And so I look at some deals that I've done with maybe U.S. mutual fund companies back in the day of the wealthy barber, and I would have tried 25 and got two deals. And so on the good news front, that's an 8% success rate, and it led to making hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's pretty exciting. On a bad news, I had to put up with 23 people saying no. Well, if you tell me you're going to have to listen to 23 no's to get hundreds of thousands of dollars, I'm in. Mm. Okay, I'm okay with that. And I think that some people are going to say, well, I'm not going to get deals of those size. Fair point. I mean, the wealthy barber was unique in terms of its corporate sales success. But remember, we're telling people, teaching people constantly how to do it, and they're getting deals for 2000 8000 11000 As Scott mentioned, a couple have been much bigger, 70000 110000 But even when you, of the 8 to 20 range. 8 to 20 is a very common range. You get a lot of deals in kind of 8000 to $20,000. Well, you sell 8000 books. You're making $4 a book. It's $32,000. Think about what that compares to what most people make from their books. Yeah. And so, again, I'm not saying any of this is easy, but nor is it that hard. And it's certainly not hard to try. Okay, it's not expensive or hard to try. No, exactly. Do you know, I think the other issue is that many authors um, have the vanity metrics of the Amazon bestseller lists and number of verifiable sales through these channels. Whereas basically those deals you're talking about, nobody sees those deals. They don't, you don't make the New York Times list selling 100,000 books directly to a bank, right? You just get, you no, get and money. That's a, that's a legitimate <laughs> point. You make a lot of money, but I'll tell you something, the indirect impact is huge because you have all of those people with book in hands. They either give it away, they read it, then they give it away. It generates huge word of mouth and does wonderful things for all of your other sales channels. I mean, we saw this over and over and over again. So when we get uh, the, the bank deal, going back to the bank deal, they did a lot of online book marketing. And of course, that raised our profile because they wanted to give the book away. They had to draw attention to it. And we saw our sales go up. And we would see this, by the way, in areas all the time. We'd have a corporate sale for the cookbooks, and we'd see that area's Costco sales go flying up. So they feed the retail beast, whether it's Amazon or old-fashioned bricks and mortar. All of this helps. All of this raises your profile, raises your awareness, raises your word of mouth, and those are absolutely pivotal things. So let me make a crucial point. When you look at the new online world, you've got millions of sites literally out there fighting for contact information. They desperately want to know who's visiting the site so they can sell something to them, so they can touch with them. One of the best ways to incentivize people to give them that contact information is to give them something of perceived value, not some sort of cheap checklist you put together that's not particularly well done. A book. A book is a great piece to use. Or an excerpt from a book is a great piece to use. So here's a good real-life example. There's a marketing podcast, and the marketing podcast is doing well. It's got hundreds of thousands of listeners. The host thinks, yeah, but I don't know who they are. I can see they're down, but we don't know who they are. Well, I can get contact information. He goes to a marketing book that's well done, well received, has strong testimonials. And he said, for anybody who sends contact information today, you get an ebook version of such and such and blah, 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 blah. And he sends it out pays $10,000 for the rights to do that. And now he's getting all kinds of contact information in. How is the author winning? Well, he or she's getting $10,000, but they're also getting all the exposure on this remarkable podcast that has hundreds of thousands of listeners. 
These are the types of creative things you have to think through. And again, in my mind, none of them are that tricky. Like, I'm not giving you great insights here. You're not going to hang up in this interview and go, man, that guy's really smart. (laughs) I'm doing a lot of common sense things, but for some strange reason, almost nobody else is doing them, even 30 years into doing this. Yeah, it's a, it is a good point. Um, so I do. It's a good point that I'm not that smart. That's not what you're supposed to <laughs> no, say. No, okay, I think that came out wrong. Okay, I think that came. That's that British humor, and I don't like it. <laughs> no, it's it's true that not a lot of people are doing. And I mean, I'm I'm chastising myself because, as I said, I heard about this like a decade ago, and I have not done it. Um, so uh, you, you're definitely making me think about it again. But I do want to ask you because um, we don't have too much time today. But uh, you also, obviously, you've been on. TV and you've used traditional media for marketing. Now you have mentioned podcasting, um, but what are some of the other ways that you're recommending people do book marketing uh, to, I guess, a wider audience? Okay. Well, first off, not TV. And I'll tell you, I really don't want the conventional authors trying to even get TV because it's tough to get. It takes a lot of time. You have to get to the studio, which often isn't in your city, depending upon circumstances. TV audiences are fragmented. They don't tend to be book buyers to the same extent others do. So that's not a good place for most authors to put their energy. But you know what is that gets no attention anymore? Radio. So you've seen radio audiences decline 10 to 15% on average, but that means they still have 80 to 85% of their old audiences. And a lot of radio shows have outstanding matches to book buyers or outstanding matches to your specific subject. And there's a trust there that develops with the host that often makes the person listening more inclined to go out and buy the book. Radio doesn't take a lot of effort. You can do it out of your house. There's no travel involved. We've now got things like you and I are using to do this interview. So radio is underestimated. You've got to put your kit together. We talk a lot about that in the course. So that's certainly one. Podcasts we've talked about, in a lot of ways, they're a dream come true because you've got these targeted audiences. People are passionate. They tend to listen more closely, which is why podcasts are getting a higher dollar of advertising per listener because the people are listening more closely. And I love podcasts, but what's really interesting about that opportunity is the research is showing that the listener comes to really trust the podcast host. So if the podcast host not only interviews you, but says, this is a truly wonderful book, this book is going to make a difference for you. Wow. Can you ever high have a high penetration rate of sales? Here's another one I think is very underutilized by a lot of authors is Twitter. But I'm not talking about your own feed. I'm talking about going after the influencers in your field and somehow, some way, getting your book into his or her hands so that they can recommend it. One of the most powerful marketing tools we have now is the mention. It's not the review. It's not a long blog post. It's a mention. It's when a trusted source on Twitter comes out and says, I read Joanna Penn's book yesterday on self-publishing. If you're thinking of going that route, you must have it. That strangely is more impactful than a long blog. People remember it. And if they trust the person saying it, they go directly to Amazon and they order the book. Well, most of aren't even pursuing those mentions. And they say, I don't know how. We talk about it in the course. It's honestly not that hard. It's fairly easy to find people if you really know how to research a little bit, or sometimes you just reach out to them. You send it here. And with the ebooks, of course, they don't have to give you their home address. You can send them an electronic version and they can at least look at parts of the book. We find one of the better things you can do is send them the introduction along with one or two sample chapters. It's digestible. It's not overwhelming. They don't feel obligated to read the entire book. They're more likely to ask, ask for more or give you the mention. Here's one marketing tool I don't believe in that you see a lot of people in the self-publishing field teaching is the way to go. They say you've got to build a following. You've got to get on social media and build a huge following. It's harder to build a following on social media than it is to sell books. <laughs> okay, that's a, that's, a, that's a difficult thing to do. And then they always give you examples and they've twisted the reality of the examples. 
they give you as examples from people who already had followings and then put books out. That's different. That's not the same as I think you should build a following after you've written your book and then make sure you try to build momentum and sell the books to the following. That takes a tremendous amount of time. Harder to build a following now, by the way, than it was five and 10 years ago because everybody's on social media. What I'd rather do is go find the people who already have followings out there, match to my target demographic and figure out how do I partner with them? How do I expose my wares to all those different types of things? That's what you're trying to do. Like you look at with our course, the Chilton method. Well, you, you have a, a pipeline to people who want to learn more about self-publishing and book marketing. Why wouldn't I come on and talk to you? That just makes perfect sense. You're trying to help people. I mean, it, it, everybody wins when we do this type of thing. So there's lots of things I believe in and things I don't believe in, but I think that one is overhyped by the field. I know very few authors who post writing the book have built up big momentums and big followings to take advantage and move the book to. That is a tough, tough task. Mm, no, I, I think you're right there. So um, obviously with your business experience, you've met a lot of people, you've worked with a lot of companies and uh, you've seen a lot of failure as well as success. So I wondered if you just give us um, a sort of mindset. What is the mindset of the people you've seen succeed over the long term? You know, this sounds a little bit corny, but my son and I talk about this all the time. I think more than anything else, it's grit. I mean, yes, a lot of the people are very, very sharp, but I, I know a lot of people have done well in business, well in publishing even, who, you know, weren't geniuses in school by any stretch. They didn't come from wealthy families. They didn't have great connections, but they had grit. They had determination. If you're an entrepreneur, whether it's through self-publishing or any other field, you're going to have to deal with failure. You're going to fall down. Can you get back up again? Can you persevere? Do you believe in what you're doing? And I think that's so crucial. If you believe that what you're writing or what you're creating is going to help people, it's going to make a positive difference, you get a lot of your stamina, a lot of your courage, a lot of your energy from that belief. So there's a mental toughness, I think, that has to be there in order to succeed. The good news is it pays off. In the book business, the book marketing business in particular, there's something I've noticed for 30 years now. As you get out there and you try to build traction, it's tough. Getting that first big media coverage, getting that first big special sale, one is one, two is three, and three is seven. And that's something I say to authors all the time. If you can get the first one, you'll get the second. But when you get the second, the third one comes quickly. And when you get the third, all of a sudden you've got seven, and now you've got momentum. But most people give up before they get that first big one. You've got to keep fighting. And it's not easy, but I think grit is probably the biggest, biggest determination of people's success. Mm, that's fantastic. So final question. I was looking at your Twitter stream um, at wealthy underscore barber, and I saw that uh, you might be writing a new book. So I wondered if you can tell us anything about that. Well, the funny thing is it's not on finance. And I, I did an interview recently with one of the big paper chains here in Canada, newspaper chains. And the fellow said to me, what is it on? And I jokingly said, it's seniors erotica. <laughs> And, very and he popular. Thought, yeah, very yeah, popular. Yeah, well, I was going to say it's the Fifty Shades of Grey Hair, and or the Horny Barber, whatever. I had lots of titles I could throw, but he thought I was dead serious, and so he had some kind of straight laced uh, comeback. But it's not seniors erotica. Not that I'm above that. I'm clearly not. It's a book more on life lessons, and I'm not saying a whole lot about it now. A lot of humor. I put a lot of time into it. I'm enjoying it. I'm not self publishing for the first time because I'm so busy right now with other projects and Dragons Den investments I've made that I'm going with Simon and Schuster in this particular case. But I'll control the special sales market, obviously. Mm. So I'll have the same type of deal I did with Prima all those years ago in the states. And I'm excited about it coming out and still enjoying everything. You know, it's funny. I every day I get up, I can hardly wait to tackle the different challenges and get at things. And I think the fact that business is hard is what makes it uh, fun. I mean, if it all fell into your lap, was easy. None of us would enjoy it as much. Oh, no, absolutely. 
<laughs> so where can people find you and your books and the course online? Well, this is a funny answer, but I'm being truthful. I don't want them to find me. And I put the course out and I actually say in the course, this is the first course in history where we don't want you finding us. We don't want you buying anything else from us. In fact, I don't make any money from the course. I donated all the material to the distribution company. My son's gotten involved with them. I, always return emails and he always returns the emails and calls, but I don't because I did all this to help people, but also because I was being overwhelmed with requests. Mm. But the Chilton method is available. I think you're going to post a link to it and people can go and get it. It's a very inexpensive course because it wasn't about making money. It's 199 or 195 US. 175, $195, 175 modules. Okay, 175 modules in the course, by the way, is 17 hours worth of book marketing. But I think what people will like about it is it's funny. There's a lot of humor in it, a lot of very interesting examples that we walk people through. You can see the testimonials, not only from users, but from some of the most well-known people in publishing, the lead editor at Simon & Schuster, all kinds of people. Judith Applebaum, who used to be the biggest name in our field, and they all say it's the best of the courses. We're very proud of it. We really are. And much more important to me than the feedback has been the results. It's great that people have used the course and been able to get corporate sales and major media and all those different types of things. I think you'll love it. Like, you know, as much about this field as anybody. And I think you'll watch a lot of the videos, including the first 38, which are on putting your book together. And you'll think, wow, I never really thought of things that way. Like the very first module in the whole course says to people, never put your acknowledgements at the front of a book. (laughs) And it walks through why that's a big mistake and why you shouldn't do it. And the second one is how people waste the dedication page because it's a great opportunity to connect with the reader. But most people have boring dedications, which you should never do. Those are the first two modules. They're relatively short. They're punchy, but they really will make you think differently about book construction, book marketing, everything. So anyway, I'm excited about the whole thing, as you can tell. And I think your listeners, again, can link to it through you. And I think they'll enjoy the course immensely. And the corporate sales part in particular gives them information they won't have thought of before and opens up all kinds of possibilities. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, David. That was fantastic. It was great to meet you. Thank you for your time. I can tell that you're British because you're the first person to ever call me brilliant. (laughs) Only a British person would use that term when describing me. Anyway, it's very nice talking to you too. Keep up the good work. So I hope you found the discussion with David interesting. I'm certainly got a lot of ideas from the discussion. And as I mentioned, I, I think I want to write a different kind of book that would be suitable for that kind of deal. Now, David does have a course on selling in bulk to corporates. And yes, I'm an affiliate. Uh, my link, should you choose to accept it, is thecreativepen.com forward slash bulk sales. All one word. Links in the show notes. So next week, I have a special interview with Mark McGuinness, who is a poet, a creative entrepreneur and a coach for creative people. And Mark spent many years as a psychotherapist. He's also a personal friend of mine. So we share quite openly together. And I asked him to come on um, to talk about issues around anxiety, creativity, which, you know, I'm definitely... I'm being very productive. I'm making these courses, but I've really struggled with getting back to my novel. And we we talk about these things. And I had a bit of a brainwave when we talked and I share it in the interview. So you can hear about that. We also talk about what might uh, be impacted in the future once this is over. So tune in next week if you want to have a listen. In the meantime, stay safe and happy writing. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. 
You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.